It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. It's a little challenging to pick the beginning of some conversations, but I saved a side conversation that I was about to have with today's guest. Instead of having that outside of the recording, I thought it would be nice to talk about on the recording because it really ties into the work that she's doing, the book that she wrote. And today I'm sitting down with Arwinder, who often goes by Arwi, and we were discussing technology because this is actually our second time meeting virtually. The first time we met, we ran into some technical challenges and we decided to make a new technology purchase. And that made a big difference today. Here we are successfully recording. And it had me wondering what a purchase like that means to you and how you consider that, your impact that you have on the environment and the impact that it has mm-hmm. on your life. And finding that balance really ties so beautifully into the work that you're doing. When I was researching you, I came across a few phrases that really spoke to me. And one of them was, are humans really entitled to everything we want? And when it comes to making purchases, consuming things, buying something like a computer, which is very resource intensive, not just on our wallets, but also in the sourcing of all of these parts, the labor that goes into creating them, the people that are selling them. I mean, there's a long pipeline that is involved with what is seemingly a simple purchase. And I was curious if you could walk me through what that decision is like, are we, based on all of the research and knowledge Mm -hmm. that you have obtained? Thank you, first of all, for asking me that because, yeah, you're right. That's a good segue because, yeah, with our last plan that we had to try to speak, we weren't able to do it because the technology simply wasn't working very well. And actually, you're not the first one. I had another podcast that I recorded that was actually complete waste because it's not usable. And so I'm going to have to redo that one. So I have a love-hate relationship with technology, like a lot of people probably do. I'm not from the, quote, younger generation where I I was born into it and I just love it and I love everything about it. I'm the older generation now turning 66. I just turned. So for me, I've had to learn it. Some of it through work, which I was, I could use basic Word and Microsoft and emails. But other than that, I find it very daunting and I find it is really takes up a lot of my valuable time. Even though I'm sort of technically I'm retired, but I spend sometimes literally hours day after day dealing with different technology problems. Because just as an example, the one you just gave me, okay, the problem is what is the problem? Is it my internet connection? Is it my Wi-Fi? So I've had to have all these systems checked out. I've had the service provider come out. I've had technology replaced. 
I took my iPhone in and had that checked out. And they said, nope, your Wi-Fi is working. So I've had to systematically go through all these things. And all of us know if you have to call in for a help center to get help, you're sometimes you're on there for hours. And when this is going on day after day, I personally am finding it very sort of frustrating and just a really a waste of my time. I'd rather be doing other things. But as you also point out, we are now living in a society where it's harder and harder to opt out of things. Technology has become so critical, it's like an appendage. And if you don't have it, your body can't function properly. So if I want to fill a form out, oh, you have to have an app. And there are, during COVID, some elderly people couldn't get across the border because there was a form that had to be filled out on an app in order for them to get back into the country. They couldn't fill out a form and they didn't have it and they were stuck at the border. And this is just an example of, if you say, I don't want to embrace this technology, I don't want it in my life, I don't wanna pay for it, I don't wanna deal with it, you don't really have a lot of choice. And the other problem I have with technology is, yes, it's very wasteful, as you point out, I don't like buying things. On the other hand, I did just get an electric car. I feel good about that. I've been wanting to get one. I wasn't able to with the COVID and the shortages, but I'm compelled to do things that I don't want to do and I don't feel good about doing. But how do any of us really, quote, live off the grid? How do we totally do that? We had a power outage here recently when we had a bit of a storm that came through and my sister was here as well. She's staying with me. And the electricity was out for a number of hours, and we realized how completely paralyzed and helpless we were. There was no light. We couldn't see anything. We couldn't turn on any media to get any information. We couldn't cook anything because our stove wouldn't work. Our microwave doesn't work. The heat doesn't work because it's electrical. And every single thing we thought we wanted to do, we couldn't do because we had no power. And we were totally at the mercy of the powers that be to come out and fix it and get things going again. So how do we live off the grid? That's pretty tough. Sorry for the long answer. (laughs) It's a great answer because I think it's incredibly relatable, these considerations where, especially in the environmental field, I think a lot of people want to do things that are good for the environment. They want to do good things for their health, of course. But when you start to break it down, it's incredibly complex with the way our society is set up right now. A couple things came to mind as little side notes is I also had a similar realization when I participated in, it used to be called National Day of Unplugging, and I think maybe Mm. it's called the Global or International Day of Unplugging. And it is a, yes, it's now called Global. And it's an annual awareness campaign that helps people make some tech-free experiences for 24 hours. And I've participated in it for the last few years. And it's such a challenge because I don't have a lot of opportunities to not use technology unless I am intentional about it. It's rare that the power goes out in general for many of us in North America, where you and I both live. If we are in a very developed society, we have the luxury of always being on, but that also tends to be, I don't know what the opposite of luxury would be. Like it's a pro and a con, right? Mm -hmm. We're lucky to have it, but 
we also also are now liability. Exactly. Liability is a great word for that. Mm -hmm. And we have to really step back and acknowledge these things, which is why I'm so grateful for this conversation with you. So I would recommend for anyone who wants to put themselves in that situation to think about electricity and technology usage to try the Global Day of Unplugging. I think it's every March and I will link to it in the chat or in the show description and the show notes for anyone who's interested, along with anything we talk about. This is a great opportunity to point that out for listeners. If you're hearing this conversation and you want any of the resources we mentioned, including Arwee's mm-hmm. wonderful book, Living While Human, there's two places to get it. One is in the description underneath your podcast player. You could often have to click see more to reveal it. And there will be a link to Ari's book. And there also will be a link to the full blog post version of this conversation, which has all the resources, including the Global Day of Unplugging. That was one note. And secondly, are we, I think partially because of that and also through my evolving interest in camping, (laughs) I started acquiring all of these things that have doubled as backups for technology, including solar panels for charging a battery, right? So if I need to make sure my phone's working, if there's a power outage, I can now use solar power to charge that up. And that has been so wonderful, much like when you're talking about switching to an electric car, a little bit of a different situation, but it's a a way Mm -hmm. to kind of help contribute to the environment and also to prepare yourself for different situations. Mm -hmm. And I also have like a gas powered camping stove that I can use, like thinking through these situations Mm -hmm. in which we don't have to depend so much on electricity. We don't have to be as reliant on it. And camping has actually become a great way for me to learn how to be more self-sufficient. I'm curious if that's something that plays a role in your life. You were talking a bit about your travels with me, which is something Mm -hmm. you document in your book. So I'd love to hear more about how travel has impacted the way that you think through Mm -hmm. technology and resources. I think that's a very important question to talk about because as a teenager, I did a travel back to India. So I was probably, well, went to England probably for about a year beforehand. I was only about 16, 15 or 16 years old, and we actually had a full-time job working in a sewing factory with all the other South Asian immigrants that were working there. And so I had basically, I was part of the blue-collar workforce as a teenager. Just in England, I noticed a big difference of standard of living. This was in the early 70s, so I would say probably in 1972, three, four, when I was traveling in those years. England, when I went there, I was shocked to see that you didn't just have a telephone like you did here. You had a, a like one of those telephone booths that you put money into. People had that in their homes and you would have to put money in. And the regular phone, if you did have a landline, was like a long distance call. And the longer you talked on it, the more you had to pay. People did not routinely have hot water in their homes. We were staying in a church because my father was a priest. And we were staying in a Sikh temple and there was no wash facilities there. So we used to go to a public bath and go to a place where they would fill it up for us and we could have a bath and hot water and so forth. We noticed back then when you went shopping, you did not get a bag. It was awkward moments because we were standing around waiting for them to put all our groceries in a bag. 
and they were looking at us and we were looking at them. And finally, it's like, do we get a bag? And they're like, no. <laughs> okay. So we stuffed our pockets and walked home. So we saw even there that there was a difference in terms of how people were living. And then after that, when we traveled to India and I was there for probably it was close to 10 months, and that was truly, truly a culture shock in terms of the just it was overwhelming and overpowering. Everything hit your senses to such an extreme level. Everything was on the extreme of the uh, spectrum. The masses of people, the poverty, the poverty was just unbelievably difficult to see. There were just no social programs. People were handicapped. They would just be living on the streets. They'd be carting themselves around if they could. There was no medical, very little infrastructure. India was pretty famous for being very corrupt and very little of the money would ever go back into needed programs. So there was no social programs. Everybody had to fend for themselves. But it was also when I got to see people using resources in ways that I had never seen before. For example, a little boy would be running behind a cow, picking up the cow dung and slapping it into patties, putting it on the side of a wall to let it dry. That was fuel. That is what people would burn when they were cooking. There was no hot water, so you had to boil water if you needed some water. We had to learn how to cook using, well, it was the same thing, either one of those kerosene, sort of you pump the kerosene to light the fire, and then you could cook something on a single burner, or you'd have to get a used fire. And of course, we didn't know how to even light anything on fire other than maybe the house. So we basically smoked the building out. After a while, they said, okay, forget it. You guys are not going to be building your own fires to cook your food. So just you can use this kerosene thing. That's it. So we had to learn that things that we considered to be, and this goes to your point that you were mentioning before about what are rights, what are privileges, what are needs, what are wants. Those are things that I really differentiate in my book. Uh, Lots of things that we think that we're entitled to, that we think are rights, are actually privileges, but we've never viewed them that way. So we realize that there's lots of people living in the world that don't even have access to basic things like clean water and hot water, resources that we just, we could go to grocery stores here that were full of food. We got free medical, an ambulance would come if we needed it. We could go to school. In other parts of the world, girls are literally dying to go to school. They are not allowed to go to school. I also learned something that I thought was a right, which is I could make my own decisions and I could be in control of my own life. And going to India, I realized, no, my life wouldn't have been like that at all. Had I not immigrated to Canada with my family, I would have been raised in a very traditional lifestyle where I would have been married very early. I would have been living with my husband and his family. I would have been looking after him, the children, and the in-laws. And I would have been living a life of servitude for the remainder of my life. And there's no choice in the matter. That's And you don't get to choose who you marry. My parents had an arranged marriage, and that was very difficult. So these were all very eye-opening things for me. We were almost actually in a situation where we would have been forced to get married while we were there. And so we realized that my my father had decided to stay in India. He wasn't going to come back here. And so that is what he wanted us to do was to stay there. And we realized pretty quick that if we don't leave, 
this is going to be our life. So we had to get an exit strategy quick to leave and come back to Canada. But many of those things that we thought these are our rights, we realized we are privileged. We are privileged to have those things. So what is a right? And just because we want something, what makes us think that we're entitled to have that and that we should have that at any cost to either others, society, and more importantly, the planet? And often in India, people had an economic reason for doing what they did. For example, oh, cows are not sacred because people just think they're wonderful deities or something. Really, when you looked at it from an economic point of view, it makes much more sense to let a cow live because you're going to get labor, you get milk, you get cheese, you get yogurt, you get all kinds of things that come from a cow versus if you just killed a cow and ate it, that would be very limited for very limited number of people. So there's usually an economic reason for so-called religious belief systems. They actually have much more to do with the economy than we may realize. That's such an interesting point. I mean, so much of this is fascinating. I mean, the entitlement and the privilege is something that I think a lot about because recognizing how much privilege I have, I've noticed it requires me to constantly be learning. I have a whole lifetime of privilege. So I need to be very conscious about my own entitlements. And it actually came up in the last few weeks, I've been in an interesting situation that I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on. I won't share the specifics, but it really ties into some of the things that you're sharing with this question of what to do once your eyes are open to your entitlement, your privileges versus disparities, marginalization that other people are facing. As somebody who very relative to many people in the world experiences a lot of privilege, Sometimes I feel paralyzed when I see someone who's in a very different situation than me. And I wonder, what do I do? What's actually beneficial? What actions can I be taking to support that individual and other people who are facing that too? And honestly, I still have a lot to learn about that. It's one thing to be aware, and it's another thing to take action. So my eyes feel open. But in this specific situation that I was in the last few weeks, it still hasn't been resolved. Essentially, it's one of the people that I've been working with as a consultant. That's what I do outside of the podcast is I consult for a variety of different businesses. And they have team members in another country. And it came to my attention that the work environment that I was experiencing as a U.S. citizen and employee is very different than the, some of the staff members in, in other countries. And it doesn't seem to me that they're intentionally being treated differently, but I think because they're in a very different cultural situation, there's factors that maybe aren't understood by the U.S. team members and the U.S. company founders. I think it takes so much work to understand communication differences, financial differences, work differences. And I realized, wow, I don't really understand a lot of that. So I felt extremely helpless and I don't even know how much I can help, how much is even within my power. And it was this great opportunity 
for me to reflect on this. Like, where do I start to learn more? And then what can I do, if anything, to help? And of course, I don't need your guidance on that specific situation I'm in, but I think it's a great example of how many of us can observe what's going on, even in with the wars that are at play right now. For those of us that live in North America, we're seeing many things happen in other countries. And I certainly feel helpless. Like, I don't really know what to do besides reading the news. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the news, I have actually a ton of information that I devote in my book to three things I call the corporations, uh, politicians, and the media. This triangle, which is actually what is dictating what is going on in the planet. All these things are connected in terms of what is going on with social suffering. When you think about, we were just mentioning the wars. Now, how can we take care of the planet as long as we're still dropping bombs on it? I mean, here we are, it's a diametrically opposed visions and approaches. You simply cannot be humanitarian. You cannot be ecologically responsible. You cannot be dealing with climate change or poverty or health issues or animal rights. We can't deal with any of that as long as we're still dropping bombs on the planet. We are destroying our living ecosystem, our home. When we talk about the needs, what are our needs? We need air, we need water, we need soil, we need... These are the very basic fundamental things that are being destroyed when bombs are being dropped. So that's peace, the peace movement actually telling we have to stop all wars. This must be the best thing people can do to support soldiers, I say, is to protect future soldiers from dying. And that is use all of those people that are now fighting, dropping bombs on the planet. Those people can divert all of their resources and energy to actually repairing the planet. How much difference would that make if we spent the trillions of dollars that are being spent to destroy the planet, if we spent those dollars and the resources to actually help the planet, we could accomplish so much. We could clean the air, we could clean the water, we could have peace. People are on a historically massive move in terms of refugees and immigrants. There's never been that many people on the move on the globe and living in refugee camps, living in limbo, living in the borders, living, risking their lives to leave their countries than there is at this moment in time. And the reason that this is happening is because Again, corporations, politicians, and the media, they're all working together to give us the information that makes us feel like these things that they're doing are absolutely necessary. And divide and conquer, obviously, that's one of the strategies. As long as people are not getting along, they're fighting with each other in your country. You saw it with, I don't want to get into politics, but with Trump, there's a lot of things that have happened. People are more separated and divisive than ever before. And the media plays into that. The politicians play into that. And wars all play into that. We have to stop killing each other and we have to stop killing the planet. Refugees don't want to leave their countries. There's no magic place on the planet that everybody wants to go to. Everybody doesn't want to move to the US of A. Everybody doesn't want to. They want to stay in their countries. They love their homelands. That's where their families are. That's where their history is. That's where they want to live. But for the wars that are going on, the economic conditions that are being created and perpetuated by those in power, 
Many of those countries, unfortunately, have tyrants running them. Everything is being driven by power, by greed, by profit. And these three entities, the corporations and politicians and the media are all playing a role in perpetuating this. So we may not be able to do anything like we can't all just push a button and have it all go away. But as a group, there's 8 billion of us on this planet right now growing by 400,000 babies a day, I might add almost that many. There is a huge, huge network of people that could be very powerful. Just think about, like we were saying, some of the things about media that we don't like, we've talked about. Think about what happened with the whole George Floyd movement and how it went around the globe. And suddenly everybody was on the streets and they were protesting uh, what was going on People were horrified. They had said, this is enough. We've watched someone get murdered on the screen, and this has to stop. And for the first time, even in the States, you saw your own presidential candidate stepped aside so that she wouldn't be running against Pamela Harris because she was a Black person. There were people that started making different choices. They gave up. They changed some of the attitudes that were happening that have existed for years. Doesn't mean that we're there yet but it created some real changes. People have protested, whether it's baseball players, whether it's football players, they've taken the knee. Those are things that are having an impact. Corporations are pulling back from countries and and organizations that are promoting hate and war and violence. People have pulled out of Russia for the same reason. So we can make an impact. Our purchasing power has real power because When you say to Nike, we're not buying your stuff anymore, that's going to matter. That's going to mean something. And they're not going to do it for the right reason. They'll do it for the money. But hey, if we can make them do the right thing by pulling on their purse strings, so be it, as long as we get a good result. So people can do things. Social media in these instances can do a lot. And many, many good things have come out of it. And in fact, in oppressed countries and suppressed countries, the media has played a very important role because they've been able to use Facebook, they've been able to use other forums to get masses of people out protesting and getting information out to people who don't regularly get the truth put out by regular news and so forth. So there's still a lot we can do and we can post things, not vitriolic stuff. But we can sort of say, try to be balanced and try to, when I get an opportunity, I will talk about, for example, I'm childless by choice. I chose not to have children. I get a lot of sometimes flack for that from people. They get very uncomfortable with it. That's my truth. I am childless by choice. And I talk about that. And if people get upset, it's okay because we're creating a dialogue. And more and more people I'm noticing when it comes to environmental thing, it's the same thing. If something happens, most of the people are in support of the right thing. But we just have to make sure that those voices continue to be loud and continue to be present and continue not to back down from all the vitriol and the hate. And it is dying down a bit. It is. I think that some people have are coming out of this whole last few years with COVID and everything, realizing that there's things that we have missed out when we don't have a good connection with other people. And all of these things are connected. So wars, hate, ecology, human rights, all of these things are connected. We cannot have one 
without the other. It's so true and so complicated. And I would really love to go back to the childless by choice point. But before we get there, I was thinking about technology again, as you were sharing the companies that we support. And I'm curious about your stance on knowing when a company is truly invested in a cause versus something like greenwashing versus like performative things. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of pressure these days to say that you're standing for something. Mm -hmm. I mean, social media, going back to that, it's complex. A lot of people Mm want to say what they stand for, but they're afraid of the pushback to your point, whether that's an individual or a company, an organization, there's the pressure to say, whose side are you taking? Certainly that just came up in the last few months of right now we're recording in November, 2023. And I remember hearing a few months ago in September, October, people close to me wondering, should they say anything about the war going on in Israel and Palestine, and they want to say that they're for this, but they're afraid that the other side is going to come for them. And so they feel forced to be silent because they're terrified of bullying and attacks. And it's a scary time. I felt Mm -hmm. the same way after George Floyd's murder. There was all this pressure. You need to post. You need to say you're Mm -hmm. for it. And and I wanted Mm -hmm. to, but I didn't know what to say and where to say it and how to say it. I didn't want to come across like I was being performative. Right. That's a tricky thing to navigate as an individual. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But there is a way that that can be done. We don't have to take the sides because there is only one side and that's the right side. And you can say things like, and this is what I say, all violence is wrong. Nobody should be killing each other. No one should be oppressing anybody. That's not taking sides. That's just talking about a very truth, a principle, which is people should not inflict violence on one another, period. Yeah, of course, people want to get into the dialogue. Well, who started what? And you can go back and back and back and back and back. Regardless of what happened a thousand years ago, the point is, this is where we are now. We have to stop. We have to stop. That's all there is to it. More violence leads to more violence, leads to more suffering. And there's no right or wrong. It's all wrong. If it's violence, it's wrong. Nobody should be oppressing other people. Nobody should be dropping bombs and nobody should be raping, nobody should be killing. Nobody. These are all things we can say in a general way. We don't have to say, oh, black people are right and all the police are monsters. No, there are good police officers. There are people that do good things. There are people who do bad things. Bad people do bad things. We say it's bad. It doesn't matter who did it. And so we can speak in general terms to the principle of an issue, not who's right or wrong in the issue, but what is the right thing in the issue. It's just like two children when, if you're a parent, not that I am, but if two children are fighting over something, at some point you just have to say, look, neither one of you is going to get that thing, okay? Because this isn't how we do it. You either learn to get along and then you can play with it, or we take it away and nobody gets it. Like at some point, we just have to say that is wrong. We're not solving anything. This is like 2023 and we've got a country that's talking about dropping nuclear bombs still. This is insanity. These are insane people in power. These people need to be gone. They should not be having any weapons in their power. 
This is total insanity. Where we're talking about this as if though this is okay for a leader of a country who has millions of people's lives in their hands, who can destroy the quality of life for billions of people on this planet, how we talk about it like it's no big deal. Yes, Putin's right. No, so-and-so is wrong. If you're talking about killing people and dropping bombs or nuclear war, it's wrong. I don't care who's saying it. Why are we afraid to talk about principles? I talk about that in my book. It's called A Compass for the Soul. It's a compass that we use for our everyday life in cutting through all of that clutter and saying, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? There's the principle to apply. What's the principle? And those are universal truths that are true no matter what time and what place. And we Mm -hmm. can refer to those. And I also talk about the blueprint. There's a blueprint for how to live as humans on the planet, as people. And there's a blueprint that ecology provides to us for how do we live as a species on this planet. So there is a template that is actually very comforting to know that nature actually has very specific rules about survival. And those apply to us too. And we simply have to look at those and say, those are the same rules we have to follow if we want to survive. It's really not as complicated as humans like to make it. It's helpful to hear it's not complicated because oftentimes it feels like complete chaos. Like hearing it simplified is relieving for me at times. But there's also the black and white elements of it. I mean, or the gray areas, I should say. It's not always so black and white. When I was mentioning how an individual versus an organization is going to take a stance and how they might represent themselves through the media, an example that comes to mind that feels complex to me, I mean, some people might see it as black and white, but but is Elon Musk. Like, He's created this wonderful electric car company that I own a Tesla, and I feel like mm-hmm. very in alignment with a lot of the ethos there. But sometimes the things that he posts online are, I don't even know what to, word to use, but mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. are very polarizing, I guess. And yeah. Yeah. there are times where I question, do I want to mm-hmm. continue to support a business that's run by somebody who would say those things? But I think there's nuance in there. I don't see someone Mm -hmm. like Elon Musk as a black and white person because Mm. there's a lot that he's done that is good. Mm -hmm. And there's Mm -hmm. other things that are sentiments, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so how do you navigate that? I mean, the other side of it could also be the greenwashing. The other Mm -hmm. example that comes to mind is Apple. A few months ago, they mentioned they're trying to go carbon neutral with their products. They made this whole presentation Mm -hmm. about it. It made me feel good as an Apple consumer. Mm-hmm. I like their products. I like the ethos. But there's also part of me thinking, well, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot more behind the scenes that most <laughs> consumers are not aware mm-hmm. of. So mm-hmm. how much of this is greenwashing just to yeah. make us buy more? Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think that's how we started talking in the very beginning was how do we balance the need for technology with all this, the downsides of it? and what we're part of, and how do we disentangle ourselves from everything we're involved in. Tomorrow, if I wanted to say I want to live absolutely without doing any damage to the planet, I can't do it. If I'm out purchasing anything, I'm a part of the system. Because sure, I can try to make the best decisions, most informed decisions. Do I have control from where it originates to when it comes to me? I have absolutely no control over that. All I can do is say, well, this is what they're saying. I've tried to do the research. This is 
what it sounds like to me is that they're making a lot of attempts to do the right thing. But unless we are, again, we have to go back to local. If we can't go back to the way things were when I was younger, we could drive down to our local market. The food was growing there. We bought it there. Same thing in India. Everything was natural. It was right from where you lived. So you knew where it was coming from. But as long as we're living in a structure, this global structure, where things are completely out of our sight and we don't really know what's going on, we are, to a large extent, going to be misinformed, uninformed. And I think we need to cut ourselves some slack. I don't think we need to be so hard on people and say, look, you're doing something and that company did such and such. All you can do at the end of the day is do your best. And frankly, I think this is part of the problem is that the industries and politicians, to a large extent, are putting the onus on the individual. And as much as the individual has responsibilities, I have to take responsibility for my own recycling, my garbage, what I put in, what I buy, what I consume. I need to take personal responsibility for that. But we have got to get the onus needs to be put on the industries that are producing these things in the first place. When we have alternatives out there, we can use things that are already recyclable, biodegradable, that are natural. Why are we paying more for organic foods than, when, than we do for foods with chemicals on them? Why are we allowed to put chemicals on foods? We have to go to the source. I mean, vinegar is a perfect example. You can use vinegar as a cleaning product. So why is it legal to sell chemicals when we have alternatives that are not harmful to the planet? I don't make those laws. Who makes those laws? The politicians are allowing these corporations and these industries to continue producing chemicals and toxins and harmful products, selling them, making massive amounts of money on them, and then putting the onus on us to say, you're not disposing of them properly or you're buying the wrong thing. No, no, that's wrong. That's got to stop. I'll do my part, but I don't have the same impact on the ecology as an industry that's spewing out tons and tons of waste every day, every month, every year, or dumping it into the oceans or whatever. Let's put the responsibility back where it lies. The people who have the money, the people who are making the money off of destroying the planet are not individuals, they're corporations, and these people need to be held responsible. And the politicians that are looking the other way, in many cases covering up for them, allowing all of this to go on, and then the media that never reports what's happening, that's another thing I don't want to, I can go on about the news, but that's the problem. I spend so many hours every week. Where does this go? Does this go in this pile? Does this go in that pile? And then there's times I still feel guilty. I'm like, I don't want to put that in the landfill, but I have to live with that. Meanwhile, the people who are actually responsible for destroying the planet, they're off in their yacht. They're cracking open the champagne and they're not giving it a single bit of thought. So that's got to change. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think that can contribute to so much stress and guilt. Like you mentioned, I've been 
studying and aiming to be environmentally responsible for so many years. And I've gone through all different phases Even when it came to purchasing an electric car, I'm I'm thinking I'm doing something so great for the environment. And then all these people start pointing out all the downsides to it. And I feel like, wait, what decision am I supposed to make? Like, I thought I was making a good one. Like, you can just constantly be critical of yourselves. And over the years, I've learned to be more relaxed. But then I start to feel guilty for being relaxed about it. (laughs) I'm like, wait a second, am I too relaxed? Like, should I be more stressed out about this all the time? (laughs) Well, there's a couple of things that are going on in that sort of situation. One is that we forget people are multidimensional. You can have somebody like, and I'm not going to sit here and say great things about Musk, but people are multidimensional. They can make a great contribution. I mean, there are people who complain about Mahatma Gandhi. Well, he did these things and they weren't right. Listen, the guy had an amazing impact on moving the world in the right direction. Okay. How many people are doing that? Now, Elon Musk, he probably has his own issues and flaws and problems like all the other people on the world. Unfortunately, because he has the money, he can have much more impact in terms of his negativity. So can he with his positivity? So people are multidimensional. And sometimes what we have to again say is, I can only be personally responsible for my choices. And my choice is to try to make the world a better place. I am not responsible for Elon Musk's behavior. How can I control what he does and what he says? I can't. All I can do is say he's made something that for me helps the planet and I will support that. I'm not going to support everything else he does and says. That gives me comfort, but probably because I'm very connected to that. Before, first of all, you and I could just keep talking and talking. And so be mindful of time. I think Mm -hmm. let's make sure that we talk about the childless choice, because you said to me before we started recording that this is something that makes people very uncomfortable. And given that getting uncomfortable is the theme of the show, I want to hear about that. It doesn't strike me as uncomfortable, but I'm kind of curious, A, why you're child-free by choice, and B, why do you think it makes people uncomfortable when you tell them that? Yeah, pretty important things to think about for sure. One of the reasons I think I became childless by choice is simply because of my early experiences as a teenager and seeing what was going on in India, in the country of my origin, in terms of the overpopulation, the poverty, and the plight of women, and how one did not have any choice over their destiny and how they wanted to live their life. And that became something that, for me, became a much more critical in terms of making conscious choices, that losing our ability to be in control of our destiny has very, very, very significant consequences. And we're raising people in such a way to be on what I call autopilot or a default basis. In other words, people don't even really think about it. If you ask people to describe, can you give me the reason why you chose to have, for example, somebody might have had seven children, okay? And if you sit down and say to somebody, can you, just out of curiosity, I'm curious, what led you to deciding to have seven children? I haven't heard anybody give me an answer that makes any sort of sense to me. There doesn't seem to be a plan. It just is, well, that's just what happened. And I think, wow, that's so so interesting because we forget that it's a choice. Some people are just on autopilot. They just have children because that's expected. And some people that I met in university would do the same thing. Well, I go to school, I get grade 12, I go to college, 
And then I'm going to get married. I'm going to have four kids. I'm going to do this. And I would go, wait, 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 what do you mean you're going to, you're not even married yet. What do you, how do you know you're going to have kids? Maybe the person that you're with, you don't want it. No, it's not even a thought. It just is going to happen. So when you think about, as a social worker, I also worked as a child protection social worker for about 30 years. So I raised children as their permanent legal guardian. So I actually saw them from birth to adulthood. So I saw the trajectory of many young people who were pregnant at, believe it or not, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And if you think about having a child as a default or on autopilot, Think about your life as a 12-year-old and being pregnant and being responsible for another child. And in many cases, you're going to be a single parent because if you're having a child at 12 and you're having a baby with another teenager, the chances of you two having a long-term successful relationship, parenting the young ones, and that's where's your future? Where's your destiny? What were you meant to do on this earth before this default thing happened. And many people have become trapped in a life before they've even had a chance to think about, what do I want for my life? And it's just, they're there and they're locked into it. They're trapped into it. And that becomes their destiny and their future. And we have people every day that are fighting for our right to have freedom, to have choices, to have independence, And yet here we are living in a so-called free country where we have education, we have access to uh, contraception and so forth. And we have all these people who are becoming parents by default. And it's a hugely daunting task when you have a relationship that may not be healthy, it may not be successful. And now we've got such complex relationships because people are married three, four times. There's blended families happening. So these are very, very complex societies that we have created because people haven't necessarily given much thought to, do I want to have children? And if I do, how many, when, with whom, can I afford it? Can the planet afford it? We don't think about eco-friendly, earth-friendly planning. We talk about recycling. We talk about getting an electric car. But how many of us actually say, you know what? If I have children, how many more resources will I be using on this earth? Nobody really thinks about that. And people get very uncomfortable if you tell them that that is something we should think about. And I've had many people become quite hostile when I've discussed not wanting to have children and making a conscious decision and a choice There was, I would say probably, and maybe for right reasons, many women would become very uncomfortable with that discussion. And many would not accept my decision. They would argue with me and tell me I'm going to change my mind and that I have to have one because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what women are supposed to do. And that I can't be happy. There's going to be nobody to look after me when I'm older. And all of these sort of arguments that really, at the end of the day, are not very good arguments for having a child, nor are there any guarantees that, of course, anybody is going to be there for you when you do get older. But I think I'm going to leave it with my mentor said it the best. When people would ask her and her husband why they never chose to have children, and they were in their 80s and 90s when they died, She just simply turned around and said to them, we're waiting for a people shortage. She said, we'll do our part part when there's a people shortage. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And that's very true. It's very true. So why are we 
compelled to think that that is right for everyone. Why should we all want that? I just had a discussion with somebody on Facebook earlier about the population. And she said, stop spreading that nonsense. There's never too many people on the planet. There's never too many humans. That's just bull. And I'm like, okay, do the math. 75% of the Earth's surface is water. Water table is rising, which means less land, less area, surface area of the Earth, 25% and getting less. And we keep adding 400,000 babies a day. Where are they going to live? Our planet is not getting bigger. People forget that. It's a finite place. We don't, our Earth doesn't keep expanding as we add more people to it. So we just simply have to look at it and say, we cannot talk about saving this planet if we're not putting population into the equation. And I have found that most environmental organizations refuse to talk about it as well. And I find that a problem because people blame the seals, for example. They'll say there's not enough fish right now because of the seals. The seals are eating up all the fish. Well, number one, seals only eat fish. They're not omnivores like we are. We don't have to eat fish if there's a shortage of fish, but we demand it. No, we want to eat. We're entitled. We want it. We get it. And if that means the seals die, so be it. That's how we think, right? So, how can it be? That we say seals are the reason why there's a shortage of fish, but we never think, is there any shortage because of humans? This is also relatable for me and and really resonates because I'm childless and I'm at a stage where I don't know for sure, but it's very unlikely that I will have children. And the older I get, the more I feel grateful for that, actually. I mean... One huge element of it is not just the environmental, the financial implications, like all these downsides that you just shared so eloquently, but also the mental health side of it. What I've witnessed over the last few years with a lot of my friends having children is how much they are struggling, especially my female friends. Mm -hmm. Actually, I mean, even the men in, in those relationships seem to be struggling as well. It's a huge toll on them that I think has, it's hard for a lot of people to talk about and to acknowledge the stress, the mental health challenges that come along with raising children, period. But the growing concerns about how the planet is changing and when you talk about the nuclear war side of thing, I mean, we have no idea what decisions will be made Mm -hmm. to humanity. And when you bring a child into this world, Mm -hmm. you feel responsible for introducing them into this state of the planet where the future is very uncertain. And when we look at the mental health issues that children are facing now, given how many are choosing Mm -hmm. to take their own lives at a rate that, tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe statistically that more children are ending their lives by choice than ever before. And to me, I'm thinking, why would I want to bring a child into this world of suffering? As much as I have hope for my own life, I want my mental health to be maintained. But I also think that if I had a child, their mental health would be my top priority. And if I have no control over their mental health because of the state of the world, that's just going to cause this ongoing cycle of despair. Yeah. 
Well, and that you have we, not just children, but that is true. There is no other species. We have to keep remembering that we are another biological species on this planet. And we're related very, very strongly to most of the other species on this planet. In fact, between us and the chimpanzees, there's less than 2% difference in our DNA. So we are biological beings on this planet. We need to start putting ourselves back into that whole equation and say, why are we the only species? Are any other species on this planet killing themselves, committing suicide, dying of drug overdose, killing each other by wars, by violence. No other species on this planet is doing what we do. We are the only ones. We need to really start analyzing ourselves and our behavior and start seeing it as something is wrong. We are, I call that chapter in my book called Signs of Humanity in Distress. And that's what's going on. It is not normal for eight-year-olds and seven-year-olds to be killing themselves. It is not normal for people to be dying at epidemic rates in a country that supposedly has everything. Other people are leaving their countries to come to our countries. And here, everybody is killing themselves and dying of overdoses. What is going on? There is something terribly, terribly wrong with how we're living and what we're doing to each other. So, yes. We want to look at that. That's not to say that nobody should ever have a child ever again. Of course not. But we have to say, look, if somebody really wants to have a child, nobody's saying don't have one child, right? But when you have billions of people and you have too many people having too many children, it's not only just that we should be making better decisions for ourselves, for our children, but we also have to, like you said, what is the planet we're, what are we leaving them to deal with? And we haven't solved any of those problems. We need to make sure that the planet that they're inheriting is sustainable. And if we're just going to leave them struggling to find clean air and water, I mean, children are already distressed now with asthma that are having a hard time. And this is not to be a doomsday thing. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to say we're part of the biological community and we need, and here's the difference between the wants and the needs. What do we need? We need the same things that every other species on this planet needs. We need clean air. Think about how long can you go if you held your breath, how long can you go without air, right? There's your number one priority. How long can we go without water? How long can we go without food, without shelter, without all of these things? These basic necessities that we have are the same ones that animals have. So by protecting that, we're protecting ourselves, we're protecting the planet because the biodiversity is what keeps the air clean, it's what keeps the water clean, it's what keeps the soil viable and strong and rooted and all of that. So it's an investment that we can make in the future of our children, but also that's what is going to help us survive as a planet. It's all connected. And so, yes, we're not saying nobody should ever have children again, but we have to start making more conscious, better decisions. And in one year, the United Nations statistics are that one billion children every year suffer from poverty, abuse, neglect, sexual assault, trafficking, and diseases and starvation and under foods insecurity, health issues. Why? Because the planet is not taking care of those children. And so why are we getting human trafficking? Why are we getting child trafficking? Countries that are poor, they are trying to find opportunities for themselves to survive. 
And they get caught up in all of these things because we can take advantage of people in poor countries. We can exploit them. We can pay them slave labor wages. All of these things are part of human suffering and they get perpetuated when we're not stopping and thinking, what are we adding to here? What are we doing? And think about the infrastructure in every city that you live in. It's the same everywhere. There's not enough schools, not enough childcare spots for children. There's not enough daycare spots. The roads are falling apart. There's not enough hospital beds. There's not enough of everything. Nobody ever talks about why. We always say, well, this is ridiculous. We're always behind. Why? Because infrastructure will never be able to keep up with population growth. Every year, it's going to be harder for children to get the resources that they need to have a decent life. And so just like every other species on this planet, they don't have the right to procreate. First of all, most of them, it's a seasonal thing. They maybe only go into season for a very short period of time. And guess what? Only the dominant male in many of these cases gets to to pass along his genes. So even they, even though they're completely have no, quote, restrictions put on them from the outside, where they're not using birth control, and yet they are not allowed to just populate and procreate as they want. They never outstrip their resources. That's how ecology and, survives. And it's very easy for us as humans to say, oh, there's so many stray cats. It's a problem. Like we can identify when there's an overabundance of animals in the shelter. I mean, there's a huge population issue with animals too. And it feels like our hearts are breaking when animals are put down in these shelters and all that. And there's like a completely different mentality that we have for human beings. And one thing that was coming up for me as you were sharing all of that is why people feel so angry at you for making these statements. I feel like they should be grateful that you're not having children because that's less children to, that are contributing to this problem for, instead of taking it personally, and again, mm -hmm. I imagine, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure many listeners of this show have children. This is not a personal attack, but it's an opportunity to reflect and say, okay, I've made a decision and now I can be more aware of what that decision means and take steps and perhaps be grateful for people like are we and myself potentially that are never going to have children mm -hmm. because we're making it less of a problem. And I think mm -hmm. about how... Yeah. I feel like I can make a better contribution yes. to the right. world without a child because I don't feel a need for it. I don't feel a major want for it. I can yep. instead contribute in other ways that should be equally, if not, well, I'm not going to say more valuable, but equally valuable, right? What the contributions I can make to the world do not have to be dependent on being a parent. Right. And that's the irony, isn't it? I mean- I've dedicated my life to taking care of other people's children, right? So it, just because somebody biologically is able to procreate and have children doesn't mean that biologically they're also capable of looking after them. And that doesn't exist in the biological community other than humans. In other biological communities, animals look after their children. They will fight to the death to protect their children. But what's happening in the human population, there are many, many people who are not looking after their children, not feeding them, not raising them, in fact, abusing them and killing them. I mean, there are these things are going on. I'm not saying everyone's doing this. Of course not. But no child should be born in a situation where they're not wanted, loved or cared for. There's a 
price that society is paying when we don't invest in raising healthy children. We all suffer. They are our neighbors. They are our people that we are having in our society that are not necessarily going to be happy, well-adjusted people. And in many cases, maybe they're the ones who are dealing with the substance abuse. And maybe they're the ones who have given up on society because they didn't feel loved and they didn't care, be, feel cared for and that sort of thing. So have a child if you really want to look after a child and give it the best life you possibly can. But you can't look at your, again, people see it as a right. It's my right to have a child. But what about the right of the child to be raised and loved and cared for and be given adequate food and shelter and clothing and all the rest of the things that a child is going to need? We can't isolate those things. And so people, yes, I didn't have children because I chose not to. However, I have raised hundreds and hundreds of children and hopefully tried to make them as healthy and happy as I could to be functioning, stable, happy, contributing members of society. So, yes, we don't have to have our own children. And don't forget, many people who even want children, maybe biologically they can't. That doesn't mean that somehow they're inferior to someone else. The the ability to procreate is biological. It's not some sort of, you know, well, I'm privileged because I can do this. No, raising healthy children, that's the key. Not just simply procreating and having children. All species can do that. So, yeah, we have to look at it as in a different context. And I think that where people were becoming uncomfortable with me was it was triggering something in them. I was reminding them that having children is a choice. And I don't think that most of us are raised to think that way. And sometimes if, again, I think women who were totally comfortable with their choice and their decision didn't necessarily feel as uncomfortable with mine. They were sort of like, okay, well, I'm really happy that I have children, but hey, good for you if that was your choice. But some of them, the ones that really had a hard time, I think it was triggering something in them that maybe they've had. And there are books out there. There's not very many, but there are books that have been written by women who say, if I could do it again, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have had children or I wouldn't have so many, or maybe I wouldn't have had it at that time or with this person. But there are more and more people talking about it. And I think that's got to be the first step. We have to talk about this as we need to be making choices. And let's not forget that people say, well, this is a biological urge. Women want to have children. Well, then what's going on with Roe versus Wade right now? If women, biologically, all of them wanted to have children, why is there so much pressure being put on women right now to have children against their will? That's what I want to talk about. And this is a global thing. There are many parts of the world now where women are being criminalized, even if they have a miscarriage. Some of them have ended up in prison for life because they said, no, we don't believe that that was a miscarriage. We think that you terminated this pregnancy. And women are in jail for that. So what's going on? If we're promoting this whole idea that women all biologically want to have children and procreate, why all this oppression and why all these forced obligations and duties and punishments on them for not having a child or or even being forced to have one if they were raped or if there was incest? What's going on there? We have to ask ourselves. And let's not forget the other people that are deathly afraid of people not having children are the corporations because their whole formula is a pyramid scheme. 
and they have to have continued infinite growth at the bottom to continue to pour in all that money at the top. So the last thing in the world they want to hear is people saying, oh, we're going to have less kids. So between religion, corporations, politicians, everything's based on this pyramid scheme. It's, it's like a Ponzi scheme, and we're all caught up in it. And we need to start thinking about how we want to live our own lives and what we see our future as instead of being just a pawn in this huge game, this economic, basically, scheme that the planet has been driven by now for many decades. And we're a part of that. We need to start opting out of a lot of these things. Yeah, it's something that I'm I'm grateful to have a discussion about because there's so many challenges that women are still facing as you're listing out. We still live in a very patriarchal time and to have this conversation to consider it, to really walk ourselves through the choices that we're making and why. And as you've mentioned a few times, like our needs versus our wants, our privileges, our the ways in which we might feel entitled. And the whole aim of this podcast is to question, (laughs) what are we doing and why? And what's making us uncomfortable and why? And so I'm grateful for you really highlighting your stance on it and also contemplating why it makes people uncomfortable because I'm not somebody that gets triggered by this because I'm, for the most part, in alignment with the way that you think about it. But I don't know what it's like to not be in alignment with it. I don't know why somebody might get triggered by this and what's going on for them. And that's a very relative person-by-person situation. And the aim here is just to examine it. So thank you for examining that. Thank you for examining a lot of the complex issues that we've covered today. This is really scratching the surface. And so I'm deeply grateful that you have a whole book that gets deeper into this. So for those who are wanting to continue this exploration, the first step, I believe, is to check out the book Living While Human, which Arwinder has displayed beautifully behind her, but I don't know when the uh, visual version of this podcast will come out on YouTube. So the next place that you can take a look in the meantime is in the description of this episode, which will have a link to that book. And there will also be a link to the full show notes I mentioned towards the beginning of this episode, which is at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. The website's named after elevating your wellness, your well-being, and the wellness of the planet as well. Anything wellness related, (laughs) let's elevate it together. And when you go to the website, there'll be the full blog post version of this conversation along with the resources. So whatever else we've mentioned today will be incorporated there to make it really easy for you to take some more steps. Thank you so much, Arwi, for getting into this on such a passionate, detailed <laughs> level. And you have so much wisdom and quotes and a lot to offer the world. So thank you for spending the time with me and the listener. Can I just also just mention that if people are wanting to order the book, if they want a physical copy, not to order it from Amazon, I'm sorry to say that they're selling the outdated version, not okay. the one that's dated. So if you're going to get an ebook from them, that's fine, but not the physical copy. They're not selling the correct version. I've been getting mine from Barnes and Noble and theirs is complete. They're doing print on demand as opposed to mass printing. So that's great. Okay. 
one is not able to do the current one. And also, I'm not sure if you will have my actual website of yeah, my website absolutely. that will be on your podcast, because mm-hmm. that's another way that they can also contact me because there is a way that they can reach me through my own website. Great. Actually, I use this wonderful platform called Bookshop to link to books. And now I'm curious if where exactly they're getting their copies from and if that's the more updated. Mm. It was an alternative to Amazon Uh as I endeavor to support Mm. other platforms and give people the option as Amazon can be problematic. And so Bookshop actually, I believe, sources from Mm local bookstores, but I don't know fully how it works. So I will Mm -hmm, link to that mm -hmm. and to your website so people can explore it and figure out how to get the right copy from you. And maybe this will change by the time the episode comes out too. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Well, and I do, I welcome comments and questions that people might have through you or through my website. That would be great. And thank you so much for taking all the time to chat with me and I'm I know I can be a bit too chatty sometimes there seems like so much to information to try to get out and well that's I why the show is on the longer side <laughs> we don't great. have to keep it so short glad. so oh, this is that, you're the perfect great. person to be on the show chatty people are my favorite so I'm very grateful and for also you. the ones that know how to get people uncomfortable so <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm great on both fronts there so yeah. that's great <laughs> Yeah, yes, we have that in common. (laughs) Hey, well, so great to connect with you and chat with you. And thanks so much for, for your time and for this chance. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.